Back again uh, to you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, uh, we have a keynote address uh, forthcoming uh, uh, momentarily by uh, retired four-star General John uh, Abizade. Uh, general Abizade was the commanding general of the U.S. Central Command, uh, as uh, is General McKenzie, who you heard from earlier, and as was General David Petraeus. I mean, three four-star generals. Now, I want you to ponder the implications of the following. The last time we had three four-star generals in the same session at uh, one of these policymakers' events was on September the 10th, uh, the year uh, being 2001, the day before 9-11. Uh, so that was a close call that one here in the nation's capital. And those three were General uh, P, uh, uh, General Joseph Moore, and General uh, Tommy Franks. Actually, there were four, and General Anthony uh, Zinni. So there were 16 stars in that session. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, General Abizade has had a, a, a mixed checkered career with many different exposures and experiences beyond what one would ordinarily uh, attribute uh, to a uh, career military uh, professional. Uh, he retired uh, uh, 13 years ago uh, this year and has been a private consultant during uh, most of that period, uh, but was uh, appointed to the U.S. ambassador to the Kingdom of, of Saudi Arabia, which he has accepted and has uh, been in that post uh, right now to the present. And these remarks are coming from uh, Riyadh. And yesterday he was in Jizan, which is on the Red Sea coast in the southwestern corner of Saudi Arabia. There are 34 years in the military uh, and the longest serving uh, former commanding uh, general of the uh, U.S. Uh, Central uh, Command. Uh, he's also had an academic side with regard to uh, posts at Harvard University, Stanford University, and his alma mater, uh, West Point. Uh, he's received medals from the so-called Area of uh, Responsibility, AOR countries, uh, and not just uh, in terms of Afghanistan and Egypt, but also from Germany and Australia and uh, France. Uh, his specialty has also been in strategic plans and operations, uh, which are vital uh, to effective, appropriate, uh, adequate uh, policies. And so we welcome you uh, to this session uh, from your position in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia representing the United States and uh, individuals thinking that our ambassadors report directly to the Secretary of State. That's true, uh, but the person who appoints them is the President, the Commander-in-Chief of the United States. General Abizade. Well, Dr. John Duke Anthony, thank you so much for that great introduction. Um, the only thing worse than having 12 or 16 stars would have 20 of them. So, you know, you don't want to have too many generals talking because uh, we only are, are one dimensional figures and we 
don't really know what to talk about in uh, major times, right? So look, I'm delighted to be here and I'm, I'm really delighted to talk to the National Council on US-Arab Relations. You've done a great job with the council. I know you've heard many great speakers. Uh, I'm sure there's been all sorts of very interesting discussion points that have gone on. I'm going to speak to you fairly informally and I'm gonna to talk to you about something I know about right now and that is Saudi Arabia. Really, there's no country in the Gulf that's more important as far as I'm concerned to the foreign policy and strategic security of the United States of America than Saudi Arabia. And so what, what I wanna do is talk about what's going on out here in, in kind of unambiguous terms. It's a complicated part of the world. It's a dangerous part of the world. It's an interesting part of the world. Uh, the Saudis have made my stay here as ambassador absolutely uh, terrific as far as access and ability to travel, see things, influence things. Uh, at the same time, they've been good partners. They've also been very clear in telling me what they think about many of the various things that are happening in the region. And of course, they're very, very familiar with the, the problems associated with uh, public relations in the United States. Uh, I'm not going to talk at, at any great length about it, but uh, they do know that they have quite a hurdle to overcome. Uh, but they also know that the strategic relationship is hugely important, not only to them, but to all of the Gulf region. And certainly, really, when you look at it, to the entire world. So, you know, back in the years BC, and that by that I mean before COVID, we were really moving along on some great projects here. And on the 12th of February, we had a uh, wonderful meeting, which was a meeting uh, at uh, Quincy House celebrating our National Day, but more importantly, celebrating the 75th anniversary of the famous meeting between King Abdulaziz and President Franklin Delano Roosevelt on the USS Quincy, which is the name of the house I live in. And there was probably about a thousand people there. People were enjoying each other's company. We were talking about the many reforms that have gone forward in Saudi Arabia. We were talking about the future of the relationship and also talk about how the relationship has had many ups and downs. Then COVID hit. And as you all know, especially right now, as we look at this big surge going on in the United States, COVID has not spared anybody in any region at any time. Uh, we've certainly had our challenges with it. Currently, we're in fairly good shape. Uh, don't know how we're gonna be as we go ahead, but COVID impacts the way that you deal with your interlocutors, deal with uh, people that you wanna go visit, deal with social functions, deal with the day-to-day -day policy of the United States of America. And having said that, I'd also tell you that in the past uh, many months, we've continued to move the relationship forward. We just recently completed a strategic dialogue uh, with the Saudis in Washington, D.C. that was, was uh, chaired by their foreign minister. Many of their senior policymakers were there. Uh, it was also chaired on our side by our Secretary of State. Many of our senior policymakers were there. And, and the one thing I can say is that we had frank, very realistic, very important discussions 
about the global geopolitical situation in this part of the world and about the future of the relationship and the direction that we're headed. I, I, can, I can tell you that the relationship is sound. It is strategically vibrant and important and it will require an awful lot of real care and real understanding as we move forward into deeper into the, the decade. I mean, there's lots of things going on out here right now. You know that the G20 is going on. So Saudi Arabia is the 18th largest economy on the planet, if you didn't know that. And Saudi Arabia happens to be the chair of this year's G20. And speaking of COVID, being the G20 chair in a COVID year is a pretty hard thing to do. Uh, but I want to report to you that it's been remarkable the way the Saudis have shifted everything that they've done to the virtual space in a way that's really gotten to some tough subjects economically, culturally, uh, strategically, you name it. We're going to have the big leadership conference. And uh, it's certainly been important, useful, and pretty inspiring in many re regards. I want to talk a little bit about the old Saudi Arabia and the new Saudi Arabia. I, look, I've been coming out of this part of the world for a long time. I spent a lot of my military career fighting in this part of the world. I'm delighted to say I'm not fighting now, although sometimes I wonder about that. And it's very interesting to see and remember back, uh, see where things are now and remember back to how things were then. And what was fascinating back in the, the old days, you'd, you'd come here and it wasn't much of a happy place. And it certainly wasn't a place where women were seen in the mainstream where they weren't really seen uh, very often doing many different things. Uh, there was a deep separation in the society, the society extremely conservative in the religious sense, uh, not many opportunities to listen to music, watch shows, you know, indulge in the sorts of things that people in other places regard as being fun. And you had the interesting events would take place when you'd go down to the local souks uh, at prayer time. Uh, if a woman happened to come by a religious policeman and he didn't think that that particular woman was uh, properly clad, they, she would get hit with a stick. And, and these issues about conservatism, about modernity, seemed like they would never be addressed because the society at the center of Islam, like it is, was so intensely conservative. And then along comes a new king and a new crown prince. And the new king and the new crown prince embark upon a journey of reform where women have a place in the society, where women are CEOs of corporations where women are allowed to drive in a place where they wouldn't allow, weren't allowed to drive before, where the opportunity for advancement to be part of the society is really important. In the previous Saudi Arabia, in the old Saudi Arabia, they were depriving themselves of 50% of the talent of the population, and today they're trying to unlock that. Granted, they still have a long way to go, but they're trying to unlock that. They have opportunities for fairs, festival, music, music uh, movie theaters opening, etc. And, and so I can only say to you that the old Saudi Arabia is not the Saudi Arabia I came to 
two years ago. It's a different place. It's a place that's thinking about the future, not reliving the past. It's a place where extremism is, is really not part of the fabric of life the way I used to feel it was in the past. And so while we understand the human rights issues that are frequently written about in the, in the media in the United States, and we understand the difficulties with the war in Yemen and other security difficulties that Saudi Arabia is involved in, we also need to know and understand that this is a, co a country that has embarked upon Vision 2030 in an effort to move the country into a more modern direction, to diversify the economy, to give its own people a chance to be in those jobs largely reserved for foreign expatriates in the past, and to ensure that they move this economy it's so oil-based, so particularly oil-based, they're trying to now move it away from, from that loan economy uh, to a much more diversified economy. And, and it is a period of revolutionary change. Even in COVID, it continues to move forward, although the pace is slowed. And the pace is slowed for obvious reasons. It's slowed because the price of oil has cratered. The ability of the economy to absorb many of the projects that they've had is less able to do so than it was previously. So there's some economic slowdown, but the determination to move forward on the reforms, the determination to bring the kingdom into leadership in the Gulf in the 21st century is uh, pretty well established. And you can expect them, especially as we start to come out of this COVID period, uh, to move forward with some speed and alacrity to try to get these reforms moving forward. Now, a lot of people say to me, look, Saudi Arabia, the only reason we needed a relationship with Saudi Arabia in the past was because of oil. They shipped oil to the United States. The shipment of oil around the world through the Straits of Hormuz and the Bible Mandeb were the responsibility of the United States to protect. But in today's world, we produce enough of our own oil. We don't need them anymore. Well, uh, you know, that argument doesn't really work with me because we need Saudi oil in the global economy. We need Saudi diversification for the Gulf economy. We need Saudi strategic capability for the protection of a vital part of the, the globe, the crossroads of the globe uh, against a very difficult um, hand that has been dealt with regard to security. And, and so, my view and what I've tried to convey to my embassy officers here is that I want the United States to be Saudi Arabia's number one partner of choice as they move towards this diversification and attain the goals of Vision 2030. Now, I had the opportunity to command many hundreds of thousands of American soldiers over the years. Unfortunately, many of them in war in the Middle East and those hundreds of thousands of troops made great sacrifice, fought with great courage, changed societies in ways that still are not clear to us. Yet I will tell you that these reforms in Saudi Arabia today, where 
extremism is being attacked and dismantled slowly but surely, offer more of a chance to win the global war on terrorism than the hundreds of thousands of troops we had here in active combat. So it is hugely to our advantage and the advantage of the developed world to pay attention to the reforms, to help them move forward in a way that allows for greater transparency, visibility, et cetera, because Sunni Islamic extremism cannot exist in this country if they achieve the goals of Vision 2030. And we shouldn't lose sight of that fact. So let's talk a little bit about things that we do in the security partnership that we have with the Saudis. Of course, uh, the Saudi Arabians are a huge consumer of American weapons. Uh, they have American trainers here. The relationship, in my view, has been unfortunately more transactional over the years than it should have been. We are moving in a way to move away from a transactional relationship to a transformational relationship. The reforms that are being made by the Saudi armed forces with the help of our military team and our military attache and uh, senior defense officer, Glenn Hagler, General, Major General US Army have been remarkable. They will allow Saudi Arabia to more efficiently protect itself in this dangerous area and more efficiently use their armed forces in a way that are professional, consistent, and capable. And I'm very excited about the direction of this transformation and want it to continue. They're a great CT partner. You know that they have worked with us in many ways around the Gulf, uh, not only in sharing information and intelligence, but also conducting operations. The success we've had against Sunni Islamic extremism, the fight against ISIS, the fight against Al-Qaeda has been hugely enabled by Saudi Arabia, and we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that that's the case. They've also done great work in the counter ISIS fight, the counter Al-Qaeda fight. They are uh, manning a terrorist threat financing and targeting center that is very, very valuable in the fight against extremism. And I'm happy to report that the fight against extremism, while not won, is slowly but surely being won. And one of those reasons is because of the great efforts that Saudi Arabia is making currently to make sure that people understand that extremism, extremism of the kind evidenced by ISIS and Al-Qaeda is no longer a viable path for a society that wants to modernize and wants to have a better standard of living. So when you look at the fight against extremism, and we've talked about the fight against Sunni extremism, of which Saudi Arabia is a firm partner of the United States, we have to also pay attention to the second big problem in the region, which is the fight against Shia Islamic extremism, as evidenced by the IRGC Quds Force and the Islamic Revolutionary Republic led by the mullahs in Tehran. Now, this is not what the Islamic religion wants to have be the way that we talk about Islam in this part of the world. It, it has no bearing to Islam at all. It has a bearing to people that have hijacked the religion 
on the Sunni and Shia side and moved it in a direction that makes no sense for the good people in the region to include the Iranians. While we must confront the IRGC Quds Force as an extremist organization, we must not malign the Iranian people who are a great people and a good people who want to have a better life. If I were to characterize the difference between Saudi Arabia and Iran as we move into this uh, great decade that we're in the that we're in the beginning of, I would say Saudi Arabia has embraced Vision 2030 as a way to modernize and as a way to liberalize and as a way to move into a better future, whilst while Iran remains fixated on Vision 1979, the year of the Islamic Revolution. Someday Iran will move out of that vision. Someday Iran will move to a better future for its own people. I don't know when that will be, but until that happens, I can't imagine the United States and Saudi Arabia not having to confront Iranian ambitions in a very difficult region. Of course, here in Saudi Arabia, we've had a very interesting time, at least since I've been the ambassador. I got here back in the early, late part of April and in early May, and all of a sudden we see uh, Iranian attacks on shipping in the Red Sea and in the Persian Gulf, also known to the Arabs, as you all know, as the Arabian Gulf. And it is constant harassment by proxy forces in Yemen, proxy forces in Iraq, proxy forces in Syria, proxy forces in Lebanon. It, it's a, a move to dominate the region ideologically, even though the people in the region don't welcome that kind of ideological domination. It should not be lost on any of us that back in uh, a few months ago that an attack was made directly from Iran against oil facilities in Saudi Arabia. It, it was debated in the media about whether it happened or not, uh, but those of us that are here in Saudi Arabia and our Saudi Arabian colleagues, we know where it came from. It, it's very, very clear that that attack was designed to put the Saudi oil industry on notice to drive the global oil prices into a bad direction. It didn't succeed. The Saudis were excellent in doing the uh, repair work that was essential to do that. But it goes to show you how difficult it is to operate in this area when you have a primary antagonist like Iran, who is expansionistic, ideologically driven, extremist and focused, and trying to export its revolution to the various points around the region in order to be able to dominate the shipping lanes and dominate political decision-making in countries like Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen. So there's a lot of talk, of course, that the opportunity of a new administration could be to move back towards negotiations with the Iranians. We should also note that the current administration has talked previously about negotiations with the Iranians. And while everyone would like to have peace with Iran and have Iran behave like a normal nation state, 
their behavior does not show them to be a state that wants to live in peace and a state that wants to be normal in a, poor, in a part of the world that's desperately trying to get back to normal. So the nuclear part of the equation certainly was the goal of the JCPOA to keep Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. But unfortunately, it never really dug into the problems associated with proxy expansion and territorial acquisition and influence spreading throughout the region. And I would hope that as we think about reapproaching the Iranians in whatever way that might be, that we take into account the need to bring behavior in line with the norms of civilized nations. We cannot allow proxies to continue to do their work in places like Yemen. Not only did the Iranians attack Saudi Arabia directly from their own bases with their own missiles, they also give the Houthis in Yemen missile technology and capability unarmed or unmanned uh, aerial vehicle capability, and they have attacked into the civilian sectors of Saudi Arabia time after time after time without regard to worrying about civilian casualties whatsoever. So while we lament what has happened in Yemen, and we should because it is a catastrophe with regard to the war and the humanitarian and suffering, it's essential that all of us, Saudi Arabia, the United States, Iran, the Houthis, the UN, work towards some sort of a negotiated solution that allows Yemen to have an opportunity to be a real state again, to fix its many problems. The Houthis, unfortunately, have adopted a type of ideological affiliation with the Iranians that allow them or cause them to be aggressive and difficult, that cause them to get in the way of humanitarian action to relieve some of the suffering of civilians. Certainly the Saudis have had their own problems with regard to bombing campaigns in Yemen against Houthi targets, but I can tell you that there has been a substantial reform made with the help of the United States armed forces in professionalizing the Air Force in the way that that campaign is conducted. And while we do not aid them directly, the indirect opportunities to advise them have lessened civilian casualties to a great degree. That's really not enough for any of us. What's gotta be enough for all of us is a negotiated solution that finds peace in Yemen and a solution that is internationally acceptable, and most importantly, acceptable to the people in Yemen. We've got great power competition going on out here. Chinese economic activity is rolling hard and fast. I was in uh, Jazan yesterday visiting an American company, uh, that very good American company doing a very good project with Aramco. Uh, but right next to them was a very good Chinese company uh, doing a very great project with Aramco. So Chinese competition in Saudi Arabia, which wasn't necessarily seen so easily a few years ago, is up and running and requires us to really pay attention to it. 
doesn't mean that we need to confront it, but it does mean that we need to be able to compete, especially in an important economic place here. Russia is to the north. Russia is moving around into other areas. They're helping the Syrians, of course, and um, moving into uh, difficult areas around the Middle East. It's hard to know exactly what their goals are. I guess we can say they're probably not unlike the goals have always been from the imperial days of Russia, move down into the Mediterranean, give yourself an opportunity to have some warm, warm water ports and have the opportunity to play part of the geopolitical activity and games that are extent in that area. Turkish power is evident. It's moving throughout the region in a way that is very unusual. And so as the old order of the Middle East has changed and American influence and power has diminished, it is not unusual to see greater powers and bigger powers moving into the area in an effort to try to uh, influence the action among smaller states and bigger states. The GCC is fractured with the problem associated with Qatar. It is hoped that Saudi Arabia can take the lead in solving that because in order to have a firm way to confront Iran, the GCC has to be together. And then finally, there's the Abraham Accords, which as far as I'm concerned have presented a great opportunity for this part of the world to move to a different level of discussion, to talk country to country. You've noticed that Saudi Arabia, although they have not joined into the discussions directly, they have not prevented them among their allies, and they have even assisted in allowing their airspace to be used in the transit of various uh, aircraft between the Gulf states that are moving to normalize relations with Israel. Israel, Saudi Arabia, the GCC, many of the states in the region do not want an expansionist Iran to continue to expand. It requires that they work with Israel in the security realm to find solutions to problems. And while I think that will continue, I also think that all the countries out here to include Saudi Arabia will look for ways to find peaceful solutions to these many problems that are extant in the region. Look, there's a lot of other things I could talk about, but we're really out of time with regard to the things that the United States and Saudi Arabia do together. We have a great educational and cultural exchange. There's been over 250,000 Saudi students in the last 10 years studying in the United States. They come back and they want to be part of the future. They are working in Aramco. They're working in new companies. They're working to build a new city out in the Red Sea area near Neom. Uh, there are Saudi engineers in places where I've never seen them before. Saudi executives running companies that I've never seen before. So much of this has to do with their relationship to the United States of America and the fact that they've trained and educated themselves here. And we should hope that we continue to develop this opportunity. 44,000 students currently in the States today from Saudi Arabia, but we also need to bring American students to Saudi Arabia to learn this culture. 
One of the problems we've had in our relationship with the Middle East for so many years is our lack of understanding and our unwillingness to understand. We need to learn the language. We need to learn the culture. We need to be out here, work with them in ways other than security to give them American advice, know-how, ingenuity to improve the opportunity for a better future. So with that, that pretty well brings me to the end of my talk. I don't really think there's much controversy here. Uh, I know there's a lot of feeling in various quarters in the United States that Saudi Arabia is not a friendly state, uh, that Saudi Arabia doesn't really want to be a partner of the United States. Um, my view is Saudi Arabia is a great partner of the United States. Our relationship has not been without its ups and downs, uh, nor is it perfect today. We certainly need to continue to talk about human rights. We need to talk about various other problems associated with gaining transparency and opportunity for their own people and for our own people as well. Uh, and we need to continue that dialogue. But the strategic importance, the security importance, the importance of enabling the 2030 reforms to achieve success are in my view vital to our national interests. The mutual interests of Saudi Arabia and the United States are not always equivalent, but they are more important today than I think at any time since I've been in this particular part of the region. We need to continue the partnership with them. We need to continue tough dialogue with them, but we also need to continue to ensure that we know how to work with them as a team. So my belief is that the future of Saudi Arabia is bright. Their direction is towards greater liberalization and transparency. The things that they need to work on, we need to work on with them. And that we should do everything we can to continue this relationship, make it stronger, and ensure that the reform process that has been started moves to its ultimate success. So Dr. Anthony, that's what I have to say for tonight. And I appreciate the opportunity to uh, have this discussion with you. Thank you so much, uh, General Ambassador, Ambassador General, <clears throat> for a superb uh, tour de horizon uh, covering the waterfront, so to speak. Uh, it's hard to imagine a clearer, more forthright uh, presentation of the priorities of uh, interests. Uh, you mentioned this strategic, the security, the economic, more or less in that order, uh, but facilitated not by accident or coincidence, but by political actions, diplomatic actions. And you are at the tip of the spear uh, to provide that kind of leadership and representation for the United States. We're fortunate, sir. Thank you very much. Appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for the opportunity, Dr. Dr. Anthony, I really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Look forward to seeing you. Bye-bye.